Hello and welcome to Reboot Ed, the podcast where we talk about big issues in education and hardly ever come up with any answers. I'm Mike Vollmer, your host. Um, Andrew Schwab, my sometimes co-host, is AWOL again. This time he claims to be ill. We'll, we'll see how that goes. Um, but I'm really excited. We have with us Eva Glassrud, um, who uh, has an interesting journey of her own, but also has some really interesting takes on college admissions, play, and, and we're going to talk with her about how that fits into a student's educational program. So Eva, thank you very much for being on the podcast. Thanks for having me. Oh, we're really excited to talk to you. Um, I, I should mention up front, you've got um, a couple blogs, and, and we'll refer to them later, but I saw a blog piece that you've written um, that talked about a couple kids, and you compared and contrasted their desire to get into Stanford University, a very difficult school to get entrance to, mm -hmm. um, and you talked about how one student kind of towed the line with the traditional approach, taking every AP class in sight, getting a four-point plus whatever GPA, and the other student had a divergent path, um, and I really want to get into that. But, but first, let, let's kind of go back to first principles. Um, you grew up in Iowa, and you went to Phillips Exeter, which is a very exclusive boarding school on the East Coast. Mm -hmm. I've, got to, I've got to know how that worked. How does a kid from Iowa wind up at Phillips? So it's an interesting story, I think. I'd been going to a private religious school in my hometown, Waterloo, Iowa, and one day I came home from school and I thought, there's got to be more. Like, I'm doing well in all my classes. It's not super hard to do well in any of my classes, and I'm doing well in all my sports, but I want something more. I want interesting electives, or like, I just want to push what I'm doing a little further, and I didn't even know what that meant at that point. It was seventh grade, and I came home from school one day, and I just thought, I want to go to the best school in the country. So I logged onto my dial-up internet and waited and waited and waited. <laughs> and then <laughs> once the AOL popped up, I did a search for best high school in the country. And nothing useful came up, but I kept digging. And eventually I came to this list of schools based that were ranked on different things like Average SAT score, diversity, student-teacher ratio, college matriculation. And one name I kept seeing was Phillips Exeter. And I looked at a couple others. I looked at Andover, Deerfield. But eventually I was like, there's something about Exeter that I know is right for me. So I applied there and only there. And I thought, if I don't get in, I'll stay at home. If I do get in, I'm going for sure. Sight unseen, I have to do this. And so that's wow. why I ended up at Exeter. <laughs> So sight unseen, you never visited the place, you never, other than some internet searches, you just kind of said, this is what I'm going to do. Yeah, they had, they have this system called the Harkness Table system, where every class, you never have more than like 12 people in your class, and when you have 12 in your class, you're like, oh, I can't believe there are 12 people in my English class, which is an amazing resource that obviously not all schools can provide, but... The foundation for every class was discussion. We were supposed to learn as much from other students as we did from our teachers. In fact, at one parents' weekend class that I was in, the teacher got up and left the room and came back a few minutes later, and the conversation went on seamlessly. Like, most of us didn't even notice that she had left, and the parents were like, 
wow, that's so fascinating. I can't believe that the students are carrying on the conversation themselves completely independent of the teacher. Interesting. Um, you mentioned, um, and now I can't remember which of the two blogs that you've got that I saw it on, but while you were there, classes started at, was it 8 in the morning and went all the way until 6? Yeah. And you had Saturday classes. Only till 12.35, to be fair. They don't have oh, well, classes anymore. But yeah, that quickly became a part of life. <laughs> yeah, um, but how did that work? I mean, you're taking a boatload of classes if there's only 12 kids in a class, max, and you're basically running 10 hours a day. What, what did that actually look like? Well, to be fair, there were sports built into the academic schedule so depending on what made the most sense in terms of facilities or nature. So for example, cross-country practice would be from 1.30 until 3 because that was during the middle of the day. You didn't have to worry about like what's going to happen during daylight savings. Are these kids going to be running in the dark? Um, basketball practice was from 4 to 6 during the winters because, you know, it's a really normal time to be having sports practice. With rowing, it depended on the tides of the river that we rode on. So, to be fair, two hours of that really long day were sports. And how did we manage the workload? I guess a lot of it was that our grades were based very much on class participation. So if you didn't have time to, you know, read the entire 80 pages, as long as you could come to class with really good questions or insights about the parts that you did read, or maybe you couldn't solve all the math problems, maybe you got stuck on the first problem and were unable to do any more. As long as you can come to class and be like, here's what I didn't get, here's what I tried, here's why I think it didn't work, that's how the classes went. So it was actually really exciting, and there were multiple times when teachers would be like, go, you have to leave now because class is over, I have other students, you have to go. Interesting. I, I'm thinking now about, you know, I, I went to a regular old public school six hours a day, and that six hours a day included my cross-country practice or, you know, most of my basketball practice. But what we did in class was entirely different than that. You know, we sat, uh, you, you, you know, the, the, the rule of the day was sit down, shut up, do the work, or listen to the teacher perform in the front of the school. And we've talked a lot on this podcast about how that model for public education needs to radically change, and it's changing in a lot of places, and we're seeing some some movement, but that was just like normal life for you at this relatively elite sort of school. How did that set you up for, uh, you went to Oxford, you went to, did you go to Oxford first? Or Stanford? I did abroad at Oxford just for a semester, but I did my undergraduate and graduate school at Stanford. Okay, so was that the same sort of decision process? You've left Waterloo and you want to be at the best high school, was it then a list of the best colleges? What, what made you decide to go abroad and then study at Stanford? Well, so what happened was I realized while I was at Exeter that, you know, we would go and compete with lots of other really good schools. And I realized on paper, like people say Exeter is the best, or like maybe next year Andover will be the best. One of these schools will be the best. But I don't believe that that's really true. There's no such thing as the best school in the world, but there is the best school in the world for you. 
Like, there is a boarding school in Hawaii that I could have maybe gone to, and I would have been happy there because I love Hawaii, but, you know, they didn't have the whole discussion-based classes, and I knew that I would not have had the same amazing high school experience there as I did at Exeter, and so I tried to apply that same thinking to college and, like, what's important to me? And that was actually one of the questions on my Stanford application, what's important to you? And I wrote my essay about riding my bike to the beach with my friends and how getting there was like really part of the fun, like every couple miles somebody's bike would break down, we'd be like, get out the duct tape, if you can't fix it with duct tape, you're not using enough duct tape. We'd like <laughs> stop with my socks to put on our hands when it was unexpectedly freezing, and then we'd get there and just jump in this icy water, and that was important to me. So, <laughs> so I wanted to go someplace where I could be outside a lot, because I knew being outside makes me happy. And obviously I wanted to go to a school that would be challenging for me. And, you know, I think as a college admissions counselor that that's one of the hardest questions. When a school's like, what about NYU? What about University of Chicago is great? Like, why do you want to come here? And it's, like, very hard to answer because they're all good schools. They all have impressive faculty. They all have great term abroad programs. So what about this school is interesting to you? And that's just such a personal and it's often difficult to explain decision. And so when I went to visit Stanford, I was like, I feel like this is it. This feels right. I love the weather. I love the campus. Everyone here seems really engaged, really happy. So. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I think that's an important, uh, an important thing. And I want to kind of dig into that. My, uh, my daughter is now a freshman in college. And we spent the last two years sort of having those conversations. And all the time she grew up, because I, I got my doctorate at UCLA, so UCLA was the big thing, and Lindsay wanted to go to UCLA, and that was her thing. But it, it was just because I think that's where Pops went. It wasn't, this is the school for me. But as she started to explore and, um, and figure out what it was that she wanted to do as a major, other schools came kind of to the forefront. They sort of bubbled up. Um, and we visited a lot of campuses, and she's now at um, San Diego State, and it was that same sort of thing. When we went there, and we talked with the um, chair of the department, she wants to be a speech pathologist. When she went there, she talked with the faculty, she explored the place, and we just walked around. It was that sort of thing. She just knew that that's where she wanted to go, so she kind of threw all her apples in that cart and and um, kind of forgot about UCLA and forgot about some other schools where um, she's an athlete, she had some offers, but they didn't have the program for her. Um, That's fantastic. A lot of kids wouldn't have the courage to do that, to like well, grow up thinking, I'm going to go to this school and then change their mind so late in the game and be like, actually, I think this will be a better fit for my interests. And you actually wrote about that in one of your blog pieces about how there are so many people that just by default, they just say, I'm going to an Ivy League school, and it's, it's really not because that's where they feel like they've got the best personal fit, but there's something about an Ivy school or a Stanford or um, I'll even throw UCLA into the mix. Um, I, I, you know, I mean, I could have gotten a doctorate anywhere, and... UCLA sounded really prestigious, and mm -hmm. so, somehow they let me in. But a lot uh, of great 
coach comes out of UCLA. Oh yeah, um, but you know, what is it that you you talk with kids all the time? What is it that you tell them when they say, "Well, I just want your help to get into Princeton or Yale or Harvard"? Um, you're going to see some kids, I'm sure, that just don't. That's like not the best place for them. How does that go? How does what what happens? Well, the first thing I want anyone to understand, no matter what SAT scores they have, no matter how wonderful their GPA is, is that Stanford has a five percent admissions rate. Even if you, I mean, let's say you're only competing with the top twenty percent of applicants. Still, your chances of getting in are so small, no matter how qualified you are. And a lot of times, it just kind of comes down to really small differences. You might even call it luck, which to discount all the hard work it takes to become a candidate, somebody who Stanford would even consider. But you know, maybe this year they just really wanted a bassoon player, or maybe in spite of your really good grades, they wanted somebody who had tried to start a company or just something like, oh, I think, because they're looking to build a community of students who have done all kinds of different things. You, you wrote a, um, a, a piece, and I'm going to blow this, but um, getting into your first choice isn't an accomplishment. Um, wh what do you do about that? I mean, say I want to go to Stanford, and I'm not in the top 5%. Um, some kids are just going to like be devastated, and and that's it. They they feel terrible. Uh, they feel like a loser. I mean, how could you be in the top, say, ten percent, and still feel like you're worthless? But um, yeah, as a high school teacher and a high school administrator, I saw it all the time. Kids would walk around for weeks just totally depressed because they got rejected at the school that they really wanted to go to. Um, and they were good kids. They were great kids. Mm -hmm. And I'm sure if they did get it, they would have done fine. They would have been great Stanford students, but the problem is a lot of them just won't get in. I mean, if I applied to Stanford again today, there's a 50% chance I wouldn't get in again because when I got in, they had a 10% acceptance rate, which is still really hard, really competitive, but, you know, twice. Yeah. Applicants got in back then is now. Yeah. Yes. One of the problems that I, one of the things that I see as a big problem is that a lot of these kids have never failed at anything before, and that's why they're Stanford material. Like they've worked really hard to achieve all of their goals. They have jumped through a lot of hoops. They followed a lot of instructions, and a lot of them have the helicopter parents who, when something does go wrong, their parents will help out. And I give the example in my blog post about resilience of a student forgets her violin on orchestra day. And the consequence for that is she's going to get a B in orchestra for today, or a C or an F, whatever the teacher's policy is. So she calls her mom very upset. Mom, I forgot my instrument. I'm going to get a B for the day. I might not get into Stanford now. So the mom takes the afternoon off of work, drives home, gets the instrument, drives to school, leaves the instrument at the principal's office, and then goes back to work to hopefully get some stuff done before the end of the day. And what message does that send to the daughter? It tells her, you getting a B in the class today will ruin your life. You not getting a B in the class today is more important than my friends, my plans, my career, everything else. You need to get good grades, and that's all that matters. So obviously, when they do have a setback that their parents can't fix for them, they're not going to know how to handle it. It's going to be really difficult for them to come to terms with the fact that, you know, 
I didn't get what I wanted. I failed, but you know, here's what I can do better next time. Here's what I can do differently moving forward. Just because you don't get into Stanford doesn't mean you can't do an amazing job at Oberlin or UC Davis or wherever you end up going. Right. If you would have done well at Stanford, you would do well anywhere. You just might have to reach a little bit higher to get the fruit off of the tree. This is the analogy that I give to my students. Like at Stanford, you can just grab the fruit off the trees, but you know, maybe at a UC you have to reach a little bit higher, maybe you'll have to jump to get it, but you can still get it. If you can create opportunities, if you can find resources, you will do well anywhere. You, you talked about the, the student who took marine biology trying to get into Stanford, and I, I thought that was so critical. You know, you, you talked about a couple thousand students who all took, like every AP class that the school has to offer, and um, they got their A's, and they, they have this huge resume, but really all they had a resume in was compliance. They could go to class, read the books, take the tests, get a three or better on their, AP, on their AP exams. And then you talked about the kid that took uh, marine biology. Um, talk about that a little bit. And the question is, did that kid get into Stanford? And if not, where is that kid now? Or is that, is, is that not a real story? I changed the details just to protect the student's privacy, but in my experience, that's exactly the kind of student that elite schools are looking for. They want, so basically the difference between a school like Stanford and a school like San Jose State is that Stanford has those resources that you can just grab off of the tree. If you want to do research, they will fund your research. If you want to learn a language they don't teach, they'll get you a teacher and teach you that language. You can do anything you want at a school like that, whereas San Jose State has a lot fewer resources. They have like, you know, maybe less famous faculty members. And so if all you're going to do when you get to school is go to the library and study and get good grades and take the hard classes, you don't need to go to Stanford. You can do that anywhere. You can do that at community college. You can do that at a state school. You can do that from home. But, you know, if you're going to go to Stanford, the reason you want to do that is because you can do anything there. And so they're looking for students who make the most of the resources that have been, that they have had access to. So did you do what everybody else did and take the classes that the other smart kids did and never really think, what else could I be doing? What am I passionate about? Versus a student who was like, I really like marine biology and my school has one marine bio elective. How else can I learn more about marine biology? Well, I can get scuba certified. How do I pay for my scuba certification? My parents won't pay for it. Okay. I will work, I'll get a job at the aquarium in my town so I can learn about fish, make some money, get scuba certified, and then explore the underwater world on my own. And to an admissions officer, that is the kind of student you want at your school, somebody who will look all around and explore everything and really think, where can I make a difference? What can I change? Interesting. And, and Stanford, the, this student, I, I assume, was admitted? Yeah, and I mean Stanford also takes a lot of the AP high GPA students as well. So it's not to say that if you're one of the students who has lots of APs, really good grades, you won't get into Stanford. There's a chance you still will. But you're not going to make yourself stand out just by taking 11 APs. No matter how many APs you take, somebody else will have taken more. That's not how you're going to stand out to them. So that the, the the game of taking a whole 
a whole passel of AP courses and maxing out your grade point average is not what places like Stanford. And I, I'm I'm sure we could expand that to other places, the Ivy League schools, for mm -hmm. example, or the top University of California schools, you know, UCLA, UC Davis. Um, probably throw Santa Barbara and Irvine into the mix. Um, they're looking for something different or more? It depends a lot on the student. Like if they wanted to hyper-focus on one thing, like they were obsessed with marine biology versus they tried a lot of different things or it depends a lot on the student and how they present themselves, how you explain why you did what you did. A lot of the students that I've worked with, I've gone through the essay questions with them and I'm like, okay, well let's talk about something that you've been really excited about, really passionate about. And they'll be like, well, you know, I haven't really had a lot of life experiences. I've spent a lot of time working and I, one time I almost got to be in Spanish and then I didn't. Oh. oh. Power cord. Uh-oh. <laughs> no worries. Sorry. Um, so, sorry, lost my train oh, of thought there. No, that's okay. So, wh but what do you tell the students that, um, you know, they, they haven't really had a whole lot of experiences and they weren't, like, divergent from the mainstream applicant in the sense that they followed a passion or they tried different things? Um, they're gonna they're gonna be out of the mix, or are there ways that you can work with them to to sort of highlight what it is that they might have done? So I think that everyone does have a passion, and part of my job I'm not just an editor. I don't just help them brainstorm and make their essays sound good. I like to really dig deeper and find meaning in the past and set goals for the future. So maybe they feel like they haven't done anything interesting and then it turns out that maybe this girl loves to go body surfing. As of a year ago she just got really into body surfing and she's stunned that her whole life she's been living 20 minutes from the beach and she had never been swimming in the ocean before, never tried body surfing. That could be an essay, you know, like what it means to really open your eyes, really discover and what that means to her moving forward, you know, so that essay right. I never want that to happen to me again. I want to be the person who is always finding new things, always looking for something new, never missing out on an opportunity. And into that's why I want to go to the school because there are so many opportunities, and I just want to explore for the next four years and find what I'm looking for. So, I mean, you majored in psychology. You have mm -hmm. a master's in psychology. Um, obviously, your your passion centers around those sorts of um, things, you know, introspection, looking deeper into somebody's experiences and finding meaning and um, using that to make sense out of the way that somebody lives their life. You're also uh, um, a Stuart Brown disciple. I, I, don't, I don't know it's how far on that to go, but talk, talk, how, did, how did you come to learn about Stuart Brown's work with play and did that fit into what you were doing at Stanford, or did it you learn about him? Actually, so I mentioned before I went to Stanford because I just had this good feeling about it and because I really wanted to explore the outdoors and be outside. So to that end, I took a an oceanography class. Well, 
The name of the class was Marine Biology, Natural History, and Research. It was a three-week seminar in Monterey at the Hopkins Marine Station. And I had like totally psyched myself up to be like doing this super rigorous academic research thingy. And it didn't turn out to be like that at all. The class mostly consisted of really interesting field trips. We went to the Big Sur Mountains to look at, you know, natural history and geography and hot springs, obviously. We <laughs> went on a tour of an organic farm and we had guest lecturers come in in the afternoons. And one afternoon, the guest lecturer was Stuart Brown, and he did a presentation called The Importance of Play. And I was a sophomore. Beginning of my sophomore year, I had no idea that play was something that you could do serious academic research on. So Stuart just did this amazing, life-changing presentation for me. I realized this is something that I want to learn more about. So we stayed in touch over the years, and I did a couple different research projects focused on first animal and eventually human play. And, you know, funny enough, I, when one of my psychology classes, one of my professors said, they say in psychology that all of psychology research is really psychology me-search. And I was like, that is so true for me. I've always been a people person. I grew up on this farm. I was playing all the time. I'd ride my bike to the beach with my friends in high school. And now I'm like, I have to study play. I have to learn more about this. And I have to help other people develop their play behavior, their playfulness skills. Um, anybody, by the way, who hasn't read Stuart Brown's book um, called Play, um, is missing out. I, I think that's been a really influential book for me. Um, and I, I wonder how many people at Long Marine Lab um, and Hopkins both. Hopkins might be the, the biggest collection of really brilliant laid-back marine biologists that I've ever encountered in my life. I, I had a chance to spend a summer internship there back when I was an oceanography teacher and working with Monterey Bay Aquarium. Um, really a cool experience. But we didn't go to the hot springs in Big Sur. We wandered around in the tide pools. But, mm -hmm. um, so, so now, with that sort of background and, and the research you've done in, in terms of play, does that fold back on what you see with, you mentioned, helicopter parents. Um, you wrote a blog piece about how kids can't even go to Chuck E. Cheese these days and and play that, you know, their parents are like all oh, over them. Covering. They literally, I've seen multiple parents do this, take their child's hand in theirs and like insert the token into the game for them. And it's like you are robbing your child of the chance to really develop their fine motor skills, their gross motor skills when they're like trying to figure out how to play the whack-a-mole but also really important cognitive skills, like looking at something and figuring out, how does this work? Like, what am I supposed to do with this mallet? What's going to happen when I put my coin in? And what used to happen is parents would go to Chuck E. Cheese and drink beer and eat pizza. And, and chat That was me. <laughs> that was my mom. And I have such fond memories of Chuck E. Cheese, and I feel like if all that ever happened there was my mom was like, okay, Eva, which game are we going to play next? Oh, you want to play this one? Well, here's how it works. First, you're going to put the coin in, and then the moles are going to pop up, and then you're going to hit them with this mallet. 
and you're just robbing your kid of the chance to develop everything, their bodies, their minds, their thinking skills, their social skills, because what happens if I want to play the same game you want to play? Who gets to go first? How do we negotiate and fix this problem? And the right. way, you know, as a mom will be like, well, he was here first, so we're going to let him go, and then in two minutes it'll be your turn. I can't help but think about that that kid's life and how they'll go through um, their experiences through you know school all, all the way through high school and you know mom's vision or dad's vision is for them to go to Harvard but they just want to surf um, and the conflict that happens. I actually experienced a kid, this is in, in a different school district, a much more affluent district than I currently work in. The, the standardized testing had shifted from the Stanford 9 um, normalized norm reference test to a different achievement test. And this girl, um, she was a sophomore in high school and she had gone from a 99th percentile on Stanford 9 to a 97th percentile on the other norm reference test because the norming groups had changed um, and she was she called me on the phone and was literally in tears because she wanted me to rescore her test and you know I, I don't score your test we just give it to you and they send it off it gets scored Wow. Awesome. It feel really good. Grounded her. Next year, when she could get back to the 99th percentile as norm reference test, she was, she was only allowed to stay home and study and take violin lessons. And everything else, no socialization with her friends that time, had to go back into this thing because she had allowed her scores to go down. I mean, that's a kid that's probably more primed for suicide than for, you know, feeling good about getting into anything. Um, Absolutely. You, so, you mentioned the difference between a student who sets some goals and feels excited about accomplishing them and having goals kind of imposed and then feeling relief. Mm-hmm. So that comes from a psychology theory called self-discrepancy theory, which basically says that there are three types of, there are three yous, three selves, but this isn't Freud, this is real psychology. And the first is who you actually are, your real self. And, you know, she was a girl who went from the 99th to the 97th percentile, that's who she really was. Then right. there's your, your ideal self, which is who do you want to be? She, you know, maybe wanted to be a surfer, maybe wanted to be a you know, hanging out with her friends, maybe she had like real goals, she wants to make the basketball team, and then there's your your ought self, O-U-G-H-T, like, you know, ought. <laughs> I feel like people don't use that word much anymore. Mm. And that is your perception of who you're supposed to be. Whether it's real or not, like whether your parents actually think, I won't love you anymore if you get to Harvard, if you feel that way, that's all that matters. And so, yeah, like you mentioned, there's a big difference between when you set a goal because you want to, your ideal goals, and your ought goals, which are because you think you should. 
And when you achieve a goal that you want to, you feel awesome. And you have a big rush of dopamine because, you know, especially in teenagers, the dopamine reward center is pretty active. So you feel fantastic when you do something you set out to do because you wanted to. And you're driven by like, a desire to achieve that goal versus your ought goals, which you're driven by a fear of failure. You're doing what you're doing because you're afraid you'll be in the 97th percentile again. You're afraid you won't do well in the test. You're afraid you won't get into Stanford. So you're working really hard towards this goal. Then when you get what you want, you just feel relief, which is a really important difference. So uh, let's ratchet that down from the top 5 or 12 percent of academic students to the other, say, 90 percent, the kids that maybe their parents didn't go to college, or maybe they don't believe that they can go to college. Um, and how, how do you, how, how would you use that sort of, um, that sort of construct with, with kids that are like on the edge about whether they actually think they can go to college or not? And, you know, even if it's a community college or, um, you know, a, uh, an online school or a state school, or, you know, not a Stanford, not a Harvard, um, not a UC Davis or, or that sort of thing. It, it's kind of the same, right? Mm -hmm. I think for them a big issue is a sense of belonging. And they've, you know, done studies on this and they've found that kids who maybe their parents didn't go to college, maybe they're a part of a negatively stereotyped minority, when they get their first... B or C or F or bad grade in school, they think this is because I don't belong, I got in by mistake, I shouldn't be here, my parents didn't do this, my siblings didn't do this, maybe I shouldn't do this either. And the result is a much higher dropout rate, lower grades, fewer, fewer emails to their professors. And you know, with the white students, with the students whose parents went to college before them, they don't have that same issue with belonging. When they don't do well on their first test, when they get their first bad grade, they think, I should study harder next time. College math is different from high school math, so I should you know, change my study habits and do better next time. So I think the biggest issue for that group of people is just making sure they know, if you got in, you got in for a reason. They don't just randomly pick names out of a hat. Everyone who got in is someone the admissions team was like, this person would make our school better. And, you know, I'm thinking about, you know, the, 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 um, the goals as, as opposed to, you know, my, my real personal goals. If I'm going to school because I have a perception that somebody, maybe it's not even my parents. I mean, I've seen kids, I, I wish I would have known about this whole branch when I was teaching and working with kids more directly, but you know, you, you see kids who get involved in sports or they get involved with gangs um, and, uh, you know, a, a wide variety of pretty negative sorts of associations and behaviors. And it really has to do with those sorts of odds. Somebody is placing some expectation on them that they're accepting. Um, it, it, dang, I wish I would have met you 15 years ago so you could Aww. talk to me oceanography kids about this, but um, does that circle around again, and um, are there ways to intervene and have kids kind of play and explore and kind of learn about that stuff um, young enough that they can still figure out that college is possible? 
I think it's definitely possible, and I haven't come up with a good scalable solution that would help all children, but I think an important first step is just having great educators who really care, you know, like you, <laughs> to no. tell them, to talk to them about what do you want to be when you grow up. Don't, you know, forget what you saw on TV, forget what other kids are doing. What do you like? And whatever it ends up being, just helping them support that or helping support that interest. One example I gave on my blog is this four-year-old boy who loved toilets. And oh, the toilet kid, yeah. yeah. And he had the most wonderful parents in the world because so many parents would be like, okay, David, time to do your flashcards now, or ew, don't touch the toilet. Toilets are dirty, icky. Instead, they got him a tour of a toilet factory, and he got to go and flush all the toilets and learn about how they worked. And... You know, based on a lot of research that I've read about psychology and how the mind works, I would say that that kid is going to grow up to be a genius at something. Maybe, like, he'll be a civil engineer genius. Right. Maybe he'll be, like, a water conservation genius. But early childhood learning experiences are so, so important because children are born with much more connected brains than we are. A child under the age of 12 probably has 12 times more neural connections in their brain than you do, than I do. And then after 12, your brain begins pruning. What you haven't used, you lose, which is part of the reason why if you don't start learning a language until adulthood, you will always speak with an accent. And to a degree, that's true for a lot of things. Hmm. And one thing that Stuart Brown talked about in his book was how, um, you've read this chapter, I'm sure, the part about the Jet Propulsion Lab at Caltech, which is the best jet propulsion lab in the world. They invented the space age, they put men on the moon, and they never had trouble attracting the top candidates from the top schools. But in the 90s, when their, young, their old engineers started retiring, they hired these new guys who were on paper equally qualified, who just weren't as good at certain kinds of problem solving. They couldn't solve problems that had more than one right answer. They were just really bad at it. And they did lots of research about why would this be true? Why can't they solve these problems? And what it came down to was childhood play. That was the only real difference they found between the old engineers and the new engineers. The old guys had tinkered growing up. They'd ridden bikes and fixed their bikes when they broke. They'd built tree forts and dams in the river. They had taken apart the clock in their house and put it back together to see how it worked. And the kids or these days... didn't get it back together. Or didn't get back together. That, that was always true for me. Yeah, smarting <laughs> from that experience when I was a kid. Um, yeah. So these these new guys had never really done that. They had done flashcards. They'd done really well in problem sets. They got good grades in school, but they'd never really like gained that intuitive sense of how things work. So childhood play experiences are really important. And now in education, you know, in in my district and many districts in on uh, in public education, there's this this maker movement um, where the idea is to create environments where kids can have those experiences and they can literally just kind of tinker with things and play with things and build things and um, take, you know, a miscellany of materials and create something out of it, which for a long, long time has been dead in education. Mm -hmm. um, you know, when I was a kid, which was ancient, ancient history, but, you know, we had shop class. Um, I learned how to work with hand tools and build things, and as inept as we were at doing it, 
we got to figure out the characteristics of the tools and what they would do and the characteristics of the materials and the things that we could do. And that all went away. So kids, you're right, kids don't get the chance to do that anymore. Brown talked too um, about um, his work with um, convicts and prisoners and the, the common characteristic that he found with people in prison was that they didn't get the chance to play much when they were kids. Exactly, and that's really scary because you know it shows just how important play is to your lifelong mental health and decision making, your lifelong ability to empathize with others and realize when I push you it hurts and I don't want to hurt you. When you never develop that sense you just it's hard to predict what's going to happen. It's a relatively new phenomenon so we're just starting to see the effects of the disappearance of childhood play and one thing that you know we have observed is depression. We are seeing so much depression and anxiety at first in college students and now it's trickling down to high school too. More kids than ever are being medicated for mental illnesses, for mood disorders, for general feelings of emptiness. Is there a commonality? Are these kids um, as a group kids that don't have the same freedom to play? Uh, is there a relationship there or do we know much about that? I mean the correlational relationship is that they're high achievers, they're kids who have not had a lot of time for free play. Free play meaning like if you were just gonna hang out for an hour, if I was like well I'm going to the store, I'll be back soon, what would you do? Would you be able to entertain yourself when your mom or babysitter wasn't around? Or, you know, because kids these days are constantly supervised, constantly being hovered over, and they have a lot of homework. They have a lot of extracurriculars. To me, going to play basketball for fun with your friends is very different from going to basketball practice, because when you're playing with your friends, you're like, okay, how many people are going to be on a team? Should we put all the tall people on one team? Like, how should we mix mm. this up? What are the rules? What are we going to do if I call a foul, but you don't think you fouled me? versus basketball practice where coach tells you to run and you run. Coach tells you to stop running and you stop. Coach tells you what drills you're going to do, you do the drills. But you're not actually learning anything, like you're not developing those social skills, you're not developing those leisure skills. If I left you home alone, would you be like, okay, well I'm gonna, I'm gonna run some laps and then I'm gonna do those drills we did at practice. I've read, uh, you know, gate kids um, as a group tend to have higher incidence of um, feelings of inadequacy, feelings of failure, um, their expectations. And I don't know now, thinking through what you were saying before, if it's those ought goals or if they're real personal goals or if they even have the ability to distinguish. But I noticed um, gate kids as a group um, seemed to be less happy than non-gate kids, even kids that I would say, wow, this kid's not in gate, but they're pretty freaking smart. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, their lives are full of small victories, but they're kind of lacking in joy. And joy is such an important emotion, especially for teenagers, I think. Teenagers have these really strange things going on in their brains. The amygdala, which is the part of your brain responsible for anxiety and fear and stress, is in overdrive. Kids have such a hard time dealing with stress. Things freak them out a lot more than things would freak out a child or an adult. 
And so they really need those moments of joy, of just doing something because it's meaningful to them. Because, like, I just love playing basketball versus, like, if I score enough points, I'll make varsity. If I make varsity, I could get a scholarship or, you know, at least be the captain, which would look good on my college applications. It's, yeah, they're lacking in joy. They're lacking in experiences that they chose to do, they chose to pursue. I've had a lot of students who did have something like that, something that they loved doing. Like one student loved making videos and putting them on YouTube, just like silly spoof videos about, you know, TV shows or, you know, anything. And he was like, I don't want my parents to know how much time I spend on that because they would tell me that I should study more. And if I came home with a bad grade, they'd say, well, why did you put all those videos on YouTube if you weren't going to get an A on your chemistry test? Mm-hmm. And that just, you know, I'm thinking now, you went off to Exeter from Iowa, um, and a large number of students that you were associating with on a daily basis, I have to assume, based on what I saw, say, at Robert Louis Stevenson School, um, which is a very exclusive and expensive school, mm-hmm. um, you probably saw the same stuff going on there. Why did you not get kind of sucked into that sort of mentality? What What's ticking inside you that kept you sort of away from that kind of drive into a an ought sort of goal kind of environment. Is that your parents or something you picked up along the way? I think it was a lot of different things. One was definitely my parents. My mom would never call me to ask how I did on a test. She would call me, but we would talk about, you know, what I was excited about, what was up with my friends. If I wanted to talk about grades, we'd talk about them. And, you know, I did well in school. I didn't bust my butt to get perfect grades. But I did well, I worked hard, I did what I was supposed to do, and I do think that good grades are important, but I don't think that we should hold every student to the same standard. If one student can get straight A's by working three hours a day and another would have to spend like eight hours a day to get the same amount of work done, it's not really fair or healthy to hold them both to that standard, especially if the reason the one kid isn't getting good grades is because they really like shop class and they really just want to work on cars. Right. That knowledge can be valuable. Any knowledge can be really valuable. Well, what message would you give then to parents um, and in the same sort of way to kids, say in high school now, about their vision of the future and, and um, the process they need to go through if they're, say, selecting a college or trying to find out what it is that they want to do in life? What 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 sort of advice would you give to them? I like to come to meetings and correspond with parents using lots of examples. And I've listed a lot of them on my blog. Like I had a friend who really liked egg drop competitions. And he loved, do you know what an egg drop competition is? Uh-huh. Yep, used to do them all the time. <laughs> yeah. And he was really into that. He loved egg drop competitions and he loved making little airplanes out of foam and gliders and flying them. And, you know, his parents were never like, you have to get better grades. And I'm not sure what his grades were like in high school. He didn't strike me as like the straight A, 11 AP kind of guy. And he got into Stanford, and he is having one of the most fulfilling careers of anyone I know. And then there are people like the woman who started ModCloth, 
which is, you know, she's worth $15 million now. She's in her 20s. She loved vintage fashion, and she liked to spend her free time in college going to thrift stores and Goodwills and just finding really interesting vintage fashion. And then she started selling the clothes online, and it turned into this multi-million dollar business. Another guy loved ear training. And like hearing a note and being like, that was a G, that was an A, that was a C. And he was really into that. He was really into music. He ended up making some online courses to help other people train their ears. And that turned into a multi-million dollar business. Hmm. And other things, you know, maybe my interest in making jewelry and starting an Etsy store won't make me rich, but maybe it will help supplement my income. Maybe I can make $100 a month or even $50 a month doing something that I'm really passionate about, but that adds up to a thousand extra dollars a year that for something that I love doing. If I have student loans, I can put that money towards my student loans and pay them down so much faster. Anything can turn into a job. Anything can turn into a career opportunity. And if you're willing to explore your interests, you're going to develop a really unique niche expertise in that thing, whether it's ear training or fashion or egg drop competitions. My friend that I mentioned before is actually working on a flying car right now. It sounds crazy. Really? If anyone can do it, it's him. Awesome. I actually I had ambitions. I when I was in college, um, I had a Ford Pinto, and there was a kit that you could buy for a Ford Pinto that would turn it into an airplane. And oh, I wanted that so bad. Wow. Never, never got it. But uh, I thought that would be interesting. I, a flying car. I think the time has come, especially if they talk to Google and make it autonomous, so you can just. Tell it to go anywhere. That would be neat. Exactly. George Jackson. Yeah, yeah. So, um, talk a little bit about um, the work you do with kids and college applicants. You typically, I assume, meet these kids and start working with them when they're juniors in high school. That is the direction that I'm moving. I mean, ultimately, what I would like to see happening with college admissions counseling is that it's not something you do where you help kids write their essays once they're seniors, but maybe it's a service where you meet once a quarter and talk about what the kids are interested in, talk about these ideal selves, talk about these intrinsic interests. What do you like, what are you interested in that's not related to college? And coming up with strategies to develop those interests, to develop that niche expertise, so that by the time you're applying to college, your junior, senior year, you have something that you want to write about. Because one of the biggest struggles I've seen with my students is they don't know what to write about. They, A lot of them come to me with this, I haven't done that much attitude. Or, or worse, they come and they're like, well, I'm going to be starting a club my senior fall. And I'm be like, oh, that's great. Let's talk about that. What club are you starting? And they'll be like, well, we haven't decided yet. It'll probably be something related to community service. And it's like, well, why are you starting a club if you're not like, you know, really excited about some idea? It's like, well, it's good leadership experience, and it's what a lot of other students are doing. And the thing is, college admissions officers can recognize that. You know, when every student applying has started their own club with. <laughs> <laughs> They know. They're great at detecting authenticity. And that's why I think that in the future, what college counseling should look like is helping kids develop those interests so they know what they want to write about and then helping them make those essays better. Ideally, the problem is that they have too many ideas. They have too much they want to write about instead of the other problem, which is like 
all I've really done is study and get good grades and take a lot of APs. My students would come to me with essays about how hard AP US history was or how they had memorized library hours because they were always at the library or the time they almost got a B in a class but then they were able to do extra credit to get the A and it's like colleges don't want to hear stories like yeah. that's not going to sound like somebody who's going to get get here and just be like okay Stanford I am going to disrupt you yeah and I think your comment earlier about colleges are looking for kids that are going to make their institution a better place um, you know, if I've got something to contribute or I've got something to, um, to do that's out of the mainstream that's going to expand the sorts of things that the college does, that's going to be way better. I mean, I, I, I can't help but thinking, you need to come down here and talk with our 8th graders about what they need to be thinking about through their high school career and and finding those things. I got to figure out a way to make that happen. I don't, I don't know how we're going to do that, but yeah. you got to talk to our eighth grade. That's exactly who we should be talking to about this. Not because we want them to get into a good school, but because if you develop this expertise, if you develop resilience, if you can learn how to take a good risk and how to like recover when it didn't work out, if you can learn how to follow a path that you are making as you go versus just like what are the other smart kids doing? That's what I'm going to do. You will have so many more life skills, and you'll have skills that computers can't do better than humans, which is not necessarily true for people who do well on standardized tests. A computer will always beat a human on the SATs. A computer will always beat a human on the AP exams. So if you really want to be successful in life, you need to have skills that computers don't. The Yeah, um, Will Richardson and Dan Pink and some others that we've talked to on our podcast have all said, the focus shouldn't be about what college you're going to. It shouldn't even be about necessarily I'm going to college. The focus should be on what am I passionate about and what can I do in my life to pursue those passions. In a lot of cases, maybe a vast majority of cases, I'm not really sure, that probably entails some sort of college experience, but not necessarily. Um, mm -hmm. I mean, you know, my whole undergraduate career was basically dirt bagging in Yosemite Valley, and there were a whole bunch of guys there that, you know, Galen Roll was um, part of that group. He went off and became a photographer, and I don't think he ever finished his degree at Berkeley. Um, other guys, you know, never went to school. Yvonne Chouinard started making climbing gear. People were doing all sorts of things, all not following that sort of mainstream thing and they're all um, Galen's passed away but they're highly successful in whatever it is that they wanted to do. Well it sounds like they got their education just at the University of Yosemite where yeah, exactly. Yeah. had a chance to develop his eye and really learn how to do nature photography and you know obviously Yosemite is such a great place for climbers. Right. We, I mean that's the same story like with the GoPro guy. Um, right. He, he was like a little lost and directionless and so he was like I'm just gonna go surfing for a while and by surfing all the time and realizing how do I film this how do I share this with my friends what skills do I have to like create this idea make this technology now he's a multimillionaire he's one of the hottest startups in the Silicon Valley right yeah a, a friend of mine 
maybe half-jokingly, when my daughter went off to, to college, he, he said, I have one piece of advice for you. And, and Lindsay said, what's that? And he said, don't let college interfere with your education. And I, you know, we all laughed and, and, mm -hmm. and thought that was quite funny. But I think there's kind of a point to it in, in terms of making sure that you don't restrict your experience to just studying and, and focusing on, on academics and not exploring other things and, you know, living a, a really kind of, well, I like your word, joyful life. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and one thing that I see a lot, speaking of your education getting in the way, or college getting in the way of your education, is that I heard so many times as both a high school and college student, I really like class A, but I'm doing badly in class B, so I have to like, you know, the thing that I like more, the thing that I'm better at, I have to spend less energy on because I really have to focus on this class B. And to some degree that makes sense, like I think if you want to be a psychologist or any kind of researcher, you have to know how to do statistics, and so you should take some stats classes. But it shouldn't be a continuous ongoing thing where you're constantly sacrificing what you're really interested in for what you should be interested in, for what you should be spending more time on. I think one important message is it's fine to get a B in something. If there's something that you just want to put all your energy into and be so, so good at and just go to bed excited, wake up excited because of class A or activity A, that's what you should be focusing on. Awesome. Well, I, we've burned an hour, um, I, and I, I got a lot more to talk to you about. Maybe we'll get you back on. Um, <laughs> if people want to get a hold of you to talk through the college application process and kind of um, get your help with that? Is, is your blog um, paved with verbs? Is that the way to do it? Or? Yeah, the website for college counseling and boarding school is pavedwithverbs.com. A name that I chose because, you know, well, first of all, good writing is full of verbs rather than adjectives. A lot of people come in with a thesaurus and they're like, now I'm a good writer. Well, no, verbs. <laughs> all about verbs, but also because the life path to success is paved with verbs. What are you doing, and why are you doing it, and finding that meaning. So, yes, pavedwithverbs.com. Okay, great. And you blog also at thehappytalent.com, because it is a happy talent to know how to play. Um, and, and it's a great blog site. I, I really enjoy it. I'm always now, you're, you're right at the top of my blog reading list, so... Oh, that's so good to hear. That's why I write. <laughs> well, good deal. Eva, thank you very much. Um, I, I can't tell you how much I appreciate you taking the time to talk with us. Um, and hopefully we'll get the chance to do it again. Yeah, I would love that. This was so much fun. Thanks very much. This is uh, Reboot Ed, and uh, we'll be back again with another guest soon. Thanks, everyone. Music by Kevin McLeod.